Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from our panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Norma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. Updates on the treatment of estrogen receptor, or ER positive, progesterone receptor, PR positive, and HER2 positive breast cancer from the 43rd Annual San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, or referred to often as SABCS. And today's program is a collaborative effort between cancer care and many cancer organizations. And uh, um, really because of that collaboration, we have so many of you on the call today. We have over 425 participants on the call today, and you come from all of the United States, um, from both rural, urban, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, Egypt, Israel, Japan, Malaysia, Philippines, Portugal, Tobago, Trinidad, United Arab Emirates, UK, and Venezuela. So it's really a bit of a global call as well. And today's program is supported by AbbVie, Pfizer, Novartis Oncology, an educational grant from Daiichi Sanko Inc., and a grant from Genentech. I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. Now, before we actually uh, introduce our first speaker, we're going to ask you to um, address a few questions. Um, and they're yes, no questions. Those of you who are live streaming can just uh, answer yes or no to the questions. I'll read the question. You'll then see the question and just respond yes or no. And the first question is, I understand what's new for the treatment of early stage ER, PR, and HER2 positive breast cancer in the context of COVID-19 presented at SABCS. Yes or no? And moving on to the second question. The second question is, I know about the treatment updates for younger people with ERPR and HER2 positive breast cancer presented at SABCS, yes or no? And the third question is, I understand treatment updates for metastatic ER, PR, and HER2-positive breast cancer in the context of COVID-19 presented at SABCS, yes or no. Fourth question. I comprehend breast cancer updates for older people with ER, PR, and HER2 positive breast cancer presented at SABCS. Yes or no? Fifth question, which is the next to last question, is I know the tips to manage treatment side effects presented at SABCS, yes or no?
is the last question now. I understand the guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments in the context of COVID-19, yes or no? Okay, well, I actually want to thank all of you for participating in these questions. It helps us to better plan the programs, and actually it helps us to actually know what you know coming into the program. Um, so thank you so much. And now I want to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Julie Grelo. Dr. Grelo is the Jill Bennett Endowed Professorship in Breast Cancer, Director of Breast Medical Oncology, University of Washington School of Medicine, Director, Breast Medical Oncology, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And Dr. Graylow is going to be addressing what's new from SABCS on early stage ERPR and HER2 positive breast cancer in the context of COVID-19, updates from SABCS on diagnostic testing, precision medicine, grade and hormone receptors for early stage ERPR and HER2 positive breast cancer, and lastly, SABCS updates on targeted treatment, hormone therapy, and chemotherapy for early-stage breast cancer. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Graylow. Thank you, Carolyn, and hi to everyone that's listening in on this call. Um, I'll just kick it right off. First of all, uh, our San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium is a big annual uh, event, uh, usually held, as the name implies, in San Antonio, Texas. This year we did it virtually, and we had uh, some real terrific presentations that were done online. Of course, we all missed being face-to-face -face and hope we're all back together again in San Antonio next December. So my first topic was related to um, COVID-19 and what might have been presented at San Antonio related to breast cancer. So I picked two abstracts to tell you just a little bit about, two presentations. One presentation um, by Dr. Park uh, looked at how had practice changed for treatment of breast cancer um, as related to COVID. And this was a survey um, that occurred during May and June. So a little while ago now, of about 114 uh, different uh, respondents as to what happened to your practice and how you're treating breast cancer uh, during COVID. And what they reported was that um, the biggest change, 66% um, actually said they did some change in their practice of the treatment of breast cancer uh, as a result of COVID. The biggest change was really delaying surgery. So early stage patients who present um, with estrogen receptor positive disease, uh, frequently surgery is the first step. And what they said was 46% um, said that they were giving patients um, some anti-estrogen therapy before surgery to try to help keep the tumor stable or shrink it a bit so that they could delay surgery. So the patient didn't have to come in and get exposed to COVID and so that they could keep the operating rooms and the ventilators and everything open. And um, uh, of those, the majority said that they were um, delaying surgery by giving preoperative anti-estrogen therapy for up to two months, and some said they were doing it for up to three months. Um, 
at our own site, we actually instituted this change for a while when we needed to try to keep the operating rooms open and the, the ventilators open, although we only did that for the first couple of months. And remember, this survey was during May and June. So I'm not sure what's going on around the country right now. We know some spots have really peaked again, and they may be still doing this. The second COVID abstract I just wanted to mention was presented by Dr. Kaki, who is from my own center in Seattle, the University of Washington and the Fred Hutchinson, and he reported results of invasive breast cancer patients who were enrolled in the um, cancer and COVID-19 registry, um, and so there were 529 breast cancer patients with COVID who were enrolled in the registry. So these were all people with diagnosed COVID and a diagnosis of breast cancer. And um, they looked at, the, you know, what were the profiles of the people who got COVID and what happened. And um, of the people who got entered into this registry, um, about um, – Half of them were white, uh, 52%, 22% were black, 13% were Hispanic, and the rest uh, were in another category. Um, uh, 34% in this registry of breast cancer patients who um, had COVID diagnosed had a history of smoking. That's much higher than our national average. Um, 36% had at least two active diseases, so not just breast cancer, but some other disease that put them at risk for COVID. And 50% were actually un actively undergoing cancer treatment uh, at the time that they developed COVID. And the outcomes of this were that 47% um, were actually hospitalized with their COVID. And um, and uh, the good news is a lot less than that uh, had died, but we still saw um, uh, some number less than 10% who had died. So I think an important takeaway from this was that um, – that uh, these breast cancer patients who were entered in the registry um, were not your typical long-term breast cancer survivor. Um, many of them had other active diseases and history of smoking was high, and many of them were actively in the midst of their cancer treatment, not the long-term survivors. And actually, on that note, ASCO on their cancer.net website, which is for patients, has a great Q&A if you type in, you know, cancer.net and then you do COVID resources. They've got a great Q&A uh, with lots of questions about this, and they very specifically say in that that early-stage breast cancer patients on anti-estrogen therapy a couple years after surgery, maybe chemo's done, radiation's done, really don't seem to have an increased risk, but they have, just like everyone else, a population risk. So let's move on real quickly. Um, what's new in genomics? Um, we saw that in early stage breast cancer, uh, we saw the results from a trial called the RX Bonder trial. And this is looking at doing genomics in the tumor of early stage breast cancer patients um, to try to predict chemotherapy benefit or not. So patients um, were tested with a genomic assay called Oncotype DX. It's a 21 gene recurrence score assay, and we kind of divide the results up into three categories. If it comes back 0 to 10, that's low. 11 to 25 is intermediate. 20, greater than 25 is high. We'd previously shown 
that in early stage breast cancer that was estrogen receptor positive, HER2 negative, and had one to three, I'm sorry, and had zero lymph nodes involved, we had seen in a prior trial called the Taylor X trial that those in the intermediate risk group and the high and the low-risk group don't benefit from chemo, but the high-risk group, uh, we feel benefits from chemo. So the R-Exponder trial, which was presented at San Antonio, said let's take those same patients, early stage, estrogen receptor positive, HER2 negative, but now they have one to three lymph nodes involved. Let's run this 21-gene recurrent score assay, Oncotype DX, and let's see if we can figure out who chemo benefits or not. And so if your recurrent score was 0 to 25, you were enrolled in our Exponder and you were asked if you would randomize to get chemo or not on top of endocrine anti-estrogen therapy. If your recurrent score was greater than 25, we felt we already knew there was a benefit from chemo, so they weren't enrolled. And what we saw was the results were different depending on if you were pre- or post-menopausal. If you were post-menopausal, we found that those who had a recurrent score from 0 to 25 had no benefit from chemo, and an important takeaway was we could safely omit chemo even though one to three lymph nodes were involved if we had this genomic profile score in a low to intermediate range. But it was different for premenopausal. We actually couldn't find a recurrent score when patients had a one, one to three positive nodes where we didn't see some benefit from chemo. But a big part of the dialogue afterwards was, is it really the chemo benefiting these premenopausal women, or is it one of the most common side effects of chemo, which is that chemo shuts down your ovaries, and is it really actually that we're taking away the ovarian estrogen that is giving the benefit? So for premenopausal, we couldn't find a recurrent score um, that we felt comfortable omitting chemo. If you had one to three positive lymph nodes, but we need to do more studies on is it really the chemo or could we just give more aggressive endocrine therapy and shut down the ovaries to get the same benefit. And then my very last topic where we're talking about um, uh, some targeted therapies in early stage breast cancer. Just going to mention a little bit about what we call cell cycle or CDK4-6 inhibitors, which are approved in treating estrogen receptor positive metastatic breast cancer in combination with endocrine therapy. And now we've got results from some early trials where they've been tested for early stage breast cancer patients being treated with endocrine therapy and do these targeted agents that we call cell cycle or CDK4-6 inhibitors actually further reduce recurrences on top of standard endocrine therapy. There are three main CDK4-6 inhibitors, abemocyclib, which is also called Rosenio, palbocyclib, also called Ibrance, and ribocyclib, also called Kiskali. So we saw the results of um, the, a trial with abemocyclib called the Monarch E trial. And this was for breast cancer patients who had positive lymph nodes. They were all got standard chemo, surgery, radiation, whatever. They all got standard uh, endocrine therapy, and they were randomized to get abemocyclib for two years or not. And with early follow-up, only 19 months of follow-up, this study reported as being positive that there were less recurrences if they got a bemocyclib. Now, the caution, this is a high-risk group of patients, and they, it's very early follow-up, only 19 months. And we know that recurrences in ER-positive breast cancer can go beyond 
Now we had a presentation and a review of a couple of studies with palbociclib or Ibrantz in early stage breast cancer. One study is called the Penelope B study, another the Palace trial. They were similar in some ways to that positive Monarch E study, but also had differences. Um, one of them only used one year of the CDK4-6 inhibitor. One of them had lower risk patients. One of them picked patients who got preoperative chemo and only enrolled patients if they still had cancer left at the time of surgery. So lots of things different about them. Both of them had longer follow-up too, which is important. And both of those trials were negative. So do these CDK4-6 inhibitors work? Is there a difference between them? Does it matter how long we give them? Will longer follow-up of that positive Monarch E trial actually turn negative? Um, we're not sure, so we're not ready to say that these should be used routinely in early-stage breast cancer, and none of them are approved in early-stage breast cancer. But it's intriguing information, and we need to keep going with these studies in order to better understand how we can help our early-stage patients have their lowest risk risk of recurrence, but also not over-treat them with therapies that can be toxic. So I'll close there and hand it back to you, Carolyn. Oh, that was excellent, Dr. Grayler. Thank you. Uh, just a wonderful um, overview of, of um, just starting off the whole program today. Just a, just a wonderful presentation. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Generosa Grana. Dr. Grana is Medical Director, MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper. Division Head, Hematology and Medical Oncology, the Cooper Health System, Professor of Medicine, Cooper Medical School at Rowan University. And Dr. Grana will be addressing SABCS updates for younger and older people with ERPR and HER2-positive breast cancer, what's new in the prevention and management of treatment side effects and long-term effects, and key questions from SABS to ask your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grana. Thank you very much, Carolyn. So I, too, uh, picked a couple of uh, topics within each of these that I will review. First, I'll begin by talking about two questions in early-stage breast cancer and two genomic tools that are currently in use. You've heard from Dr. Graylow about Oncotype. Oncotype is a genomic profile uh, that is done on the tumor tissue at the time of diagnosis, and it's used to determine uh, what therapy is embarked upon. The second test, the breast cancer index, is also a genomic profile that is done on the tissue obtained from the original biopsy, but it's used at year five as a woman is completing her first five years of endocrine therapy to determine who should continue for 10 years and where there is a rationale. So uh, the first is a question of predicting risk of recurrence and benefit from chemotherapy in node-negative patients. And remember, responder that Dr. Graylow spoke about is in node-positive patients. But Dr. Sperano uh, looked at the Oncotype tool and looked to see if you could integrate within that tool, within the 21-gene recurrence score, other features about the cancer called clinical pathologic features to help individualize prognosis and treatment plan. So the idea is that you would use the recurrence score and you would add to that uh, tumor grade, tumor size, and age, and with that information, better individualized treatment. 
the this tool is now available to oncologists on the genomic health website uh, and allows for, again, better individualized planning than the recurrence score alone. So the results of the presentation were that, indeed, this recurrence score uh, tool uh, can help you modify your risk slightly and can help you better define treatment. Your oncologist may use this tool along with the Oncotype uh, to better plan your treatment. It is not used in all cases. It was not uh, devised for node-positive patients. It's for node-negative patients, so something to be aware of. The next question is one of duration of endocrine therapy. We have heard a lot over the last five years about a duration of therapy and whether it should be five years or 10 years. And there is a tool to help us determine uh, who will preferentially benefit from extended endocrine therapy. Dr. Esgroy presented data from a European trial called the TransAtom trial, which included 7,000 women that were randomized to either five years of tamoxifen or 10 years of tamoxifen. It's important for us to remember that this is tamoxifen. I'll come back to that. Previous data has shown us a benefit of 10 over 5 of tamoxifen, but with an increase in endometrial cancer risk, primarily in postmenopausal women who are exposed to 10 years of tamoxifen. Uh, and previously, this breast cancer index tool, which is, again, a test much like Oncotype uh, genomic profile, has been shown to be prognostic uh, of both outcome and predictive of benefit with extended endocrine therapy. So in the current presentation, they looked at whether the breast cancer index alone uh, is enough or whether other features of the cancer, such as the estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, androgen receptor, KI-67, or the androgen receptor, estrogen receptor ratio, could predict benefit of endocrine therapy instead of using this tool that costs money. It costs as much as Oncotype does. So can we rely on these other clinical factors when a woman is approaching her five-year mark, or will the breast cancer index give additional benefit? The results were that these other factors could not as well predict benefit and that this tool BCI uh, continues to be a useful tool. This data has some limitations as you discuss this with your oncologist when you're coming up on your five-year decision-making tool. Uh, it was for women who received five years of tamoxifen when many women today are receiving five years of aromatase inhibitors as if they're postmenopausal. Now, there is data on this tool, uh, data from a couple of trials, MA17, the IDEAL trial, uh, looking at aromatase inhibitors and, again, showing benefit from the tool, uh, but keep that in mind in terms of this one individual presentation. And there is also very limited data on node-negative patients. Uh, many women who are node-negative, that is still a positive of data. So, again, I just wanted to highlight that there's some additional tools that oncologists and patients have access to to both determine initial treatment as well as duration of that treatment. Next, let me move on to very early stage breast cancer. And in that area, I would say the what I'm going to present to you is affirmations of things we already knew. The first is uh, treatment of ductal carcinoma in situ. We're diagnosing more ductal carcinoma in situ with the use of mammography. Uh, and we know from previous presentations that aromatase inhibitors versus tamoxifen in postmenopausal women 
are effective. Uh, the current presentation was an update of a prior study, NSABP B35, in which 1,500 women who were postmenopausal were randomized to tamoxifen or an, an astrazole, a Rimidex, and the results of the study showed no difference in recurrence. And really, uh, looking at the different subtypes of breast cancer, there was no significant effect, no significant difference. There also was no difference, no effect on death. Uh, there were, though, significant differences in adverse events, the significant differences in the um, uh, detrimental effects of this therapy. An increase in endometrial and ovarian cancer was seen with tamoxifen. An increase in fractures, TIA, and stroke were seen with the aromatase inhibitor. So the conclusion of the presentation is that we have two options in women with DCIS, uh, tamoxifen, or an aromatase inhibitor, and this is for postmenopausal women alone because uh, in the premenopausal woman, only tamoxifen is an option. And clearly, we need to focus on understanding the patient's underlying health and focus on side effect profile as we're talking about selecting between one of these two agents. The second study that I'll review here is treatment of older women with very early breast cancer. Can we omit whole breast radiation therapy in low-risk patients if we're going to give them endocrine therapy, an aromatase inhibitor or tamoxifen? This is data from a trial called PRIME2 uh, in which women with tumors that were less than three centimeters, uh, estrogen or progesterone positive, uh, were enrolled, all received endocrine therapy. And what the study showed is that whether you gave radiation or not, there was no difference in overall survival. Clearly, most of the deaths that occurred in this group were from causes unrelated to breast cancer. This is an older population of women. The authors did caution that if you have a low estrogen receptor status, this may not be as pertinent, uh, and so we do need to be a little bit careful. But again, I think this gives us the flexibility when we're seeing an older woman with a favorable tumor of potentially avoiding uh, radiation therapy. Next, uh, I want to focus on lifestyle factors, and there were two presentations that I thought were very interesting that were uh, uh, similar topics, similar themes, the, and they focus on glucose and uh, uh, diabetes. The, the first study was looking at data from a study called the NutriNet Santé study out of France, uh, looking at glycemic index and glycemic load and breast cancer risk. And basically, glycemic index is related to the specific foods that you eat. So, for example, uh, broccoli has a very low glycemic uh, index. Glycemic load, on the other hand, is the amount of carbohydrates consumed in an entire meal. So if you eat pasta, you have a high glycemic load. This study uh, showed that glycemic load was associated with increased overall cancer risk and particularly postmenopausal breast cancer risk. Uh, and foods uh, were uh, important in, in terms of contributing uh, to this. There was no association with colon cancer or prostate cancer because there were men in this study. Uh, and still no data on cancer survivors in this study because, again, there were, we don't know how many cancer survivors were actually included in this study. Having said that, I think the data was still very interesting and the concept that 
focusing on a good diet that has a low glycemic uh, load and foods that have a low glycemic index make sense for both the, the general population and the uh, breast cancer survivor population. The second study was one looking at diabetes risk reduction diet and survival following breast cancer. And this is data from the Nurses Health Study. Uh, this study showed that women with the highest score in diabetic risk reduction diet after their diagnosis had better overall survival, meaning if you change your diet and you uh, really change your uh, diabetic risk di from a high-risk diabetic diet to a low-risk, uh, after diagnosis, you decrease mortality from cancer. And I think it was very encouraging to hear that dietary changes are important. They didn't look at the contribution of exercise in this study or other factors, but I think nonetheless it gives us some hints that how you manage nutrition is important in the long-term outcome. And finally, I'm going to finish with um, targeting depressive symptoms. Uh, symptoms of emotional distress are not uncommon in the breast cancer survivor population, particularly in young women with breast cancer. And Patricia Gans presented a paper looking at a study called the Pathway to Wellness Study. There were two interventions in this study. Both were group interventions lasting approximately six weeks. One was a mindfulness awareness practice uh, lasting six weeks, and the other group was a survivorship education program. And they compared those two groups to a control. And the control was basically just a group that would have been enrolled later on. They were just waiting for enrollment. These were women that were 50 years or younger, stage zero to three, and they were between six months and five years after their original uh, breast cancer treatment. And they had a minimal level of depressive symptoms at the start, were willing to be randomized, were willing to travel, so a very selected population. And what they looked at were depressive symptoms, uh, anxiety, fatigue, sleep disorder, and hot flashes. They looked at 80 women per group, and their results showed that there was a significant decline in depression in both groups, both the uh, mindfulness group and the education group, but the mindfulness group had sustained improvement at six months, whereas the education group did not. Anxiety improved in both groups. Uh, but was not sustained. Fatigue improved more with the MAPS group. Hot flashes improved with the MAPS group, and sleep disturbance improved. So clearly there are things we should be offering our patients who uh, have emotional distress after their cancer diagnosis, and a variety of group interventions may be helpful. Mindfulness as a tool may be particularly uh, helpful and may be uh, able to maintain benefit. So finally, key questions to ask your healthcare team about uh, quality of life and other concerns. I think the important thing is to discuss openly with your team issues related to duration of therapy. How you've been on endocrine therapy now, how long uh, do you need to continue and what decision making will they use to make that decision? Is it just risk or is it your bone health or is it your arthritic symptoms that will help make that decision? Uh, finally, focus on nutrition and lifestyle. There are many Many unanswered questions, but healthy eating, exercise uh, are protective, 
and focus on addressing depression uh, and using the available supportive services that your team has available to you will make a difference. And I'll stop there. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Grana. That was really, uh, really wonderful. And uh, also just many of the uh, things that you mentioned to people in terms of diet and mindfulness, things that people can actually um, absorb and practice um, in addition to the many information you provided on the treatment uh, um, changes that were um, offered at um, at the San Antonio meeting are very helpful to people. And so thank you for, for bringing those in uh, to this to this workshop. Thank you. Thank you very much. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Tulaney. Dr. Tulaney is Associate Director, Susan F. Smith Center for Women's Cancers, Director, Clinical Trials, Breast Oncology, Senior Physician, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Tulaney will be addressing SABCS treatment update updates on metastatic ERPR in HER2-positive breast cancer, investigational new drugs in clinical trials reported at SABCS for metastatic ERPR in HER2-positive breast cancer, and also uh, preparing for telemedicine, telehealth appointments, including technology and list of questions to get the most out of these appointments. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Talani. Oh, thank you so much. Um, so there was a lot of very interesting data that came out at San Antonio focusing on metastatic breast cancer. I thought I'd first focus uh, a bit on the triple negative uh, breast cancer space. Uh, one of the studies that was presented was a trial called Keynote 355. This study was specifically looking at the benefits of adding immunotherapy to chemotherapy. So we already knew um, from a prior trial that looking that looked at atezolizumab, a checkpoint inhibitor, so an immune-stimulating agent, um, when added to specifically ataxane, seemed to improve outcomes for patients who have metastatic triple negative breast cancer that was pdl one positive. This trial, however, was a little different because it looked at a different immunotherapies, uh, pembrolizumab, so a PD-1 antibody, and it looked at adding it to not just taxing chemotherapy, but also other chemotherapies. Specifically in this trial, they looked at a combination of carboplatin and gemcitabine. And what they found was that adding immunotherapy to chemotherapy here did improve outcomes, so it allowed disease to be controlled longer. And we had already seen these data earlier this year at ASCO, but now at San Antonio, they really specifically drilled down on the differences that were seen between which chemo was given with the immunotherapy. And what we found was that there were benefits seen in all chemotherapy arms, um, so whether or not you got paclitaxel, nabpaclitaxel, or carboplatin and gemcitabine, um, suggesting that adding pembrolizumab to each of these chemotherapies was adding benefit. And that benefit was really seen only in patients who had tumors that was pdl one positive. So this becomes a little confusing because the way that PDL1 is tested was different than it was in the prior trial that we had um, done with a tezolizumab. 
um, where they use a different antibody, a different cutoff, and so it's given us a, a little bit to think about in terms of how we want to test for PDL1. But I think the bottom line is that for any patient who has metastatic triple negative breast cancer, we now really do want to know if the tumor is PDL1 positive. And if it is PDL1 positive, which is probably around 30 to 40% of uh, triple negative breast cancers, that adding immunotherapy to chemotherapy does seem to add benefit. And with pembrolizumab, it does seem that you can add any of these chemotherapies, either the taxane or the carboplatinogen cytobine, to the pembrolizumab and see benefit. So I think this was really helpful to us to, to better understand how to utilize immunotherapy for our patients with metastatic triple negative disease. And now we have FDA approvals um, for both pembrolizumab or atezolizumab uh, in the triple negative setting, which is really great. Um, continuing on our theme of uh, triple negative breast cancer, we had seen previously data from a trial called the ASCENT trial. This trial was looking at a drug called sasituzumab govotecan, which is a mouthful, um, so I've chosen to call it SASI for short. Um, so the trial randomized patients to get SASI or to get a choice of chemotherapy, uh, and this was for patients who had metastatic triple negative breast cancer that had already progressed on prior chemotherapy. And we had seen uh, at another meeting, uh, the ESMO meeting um, in the fall, that sasituzumab was better than standard chemotherapy. And this was not only in terms of, you know, shrinking the tumor in terms of what we call response rate, but it was also in terms of the duration of time that the disease could be controlled, and actually even in terms of how long women were living. So it really did seem to have a significant impact and seemed to be better than standard chemotherapy. The drug is a pretty unique and, and I think very interesting drug because it's what we call an antibody drug conjugate. So it's an antibody that is targeting a receptor called the trope 2 receptor on the cancer cell and then very cleverly binds to that receptor, gets taken into the cancer cell and releases chemo into that cancer cell, a very targeted delivery of chemotherapy. Some people call these kinds of drugs smart bombs uh, because they're really able to get that chemo right into the cancer cell. But because it's targeting this thing called trope 2 on the cancer cell, people were wondering, well, if someone's tumor had a lot of trope 2 on it, would that mean that they would do better than someone whose tumor had a little bit of trope 2 expression? Um, you know, is the drug something that would really perform better dependent on the level of trope 2 expression? And, and one could imagine that may be the case because you're sort of targeting that receptor and delivering the chemo into those cells that have it. And so the analysis that was presented at San Antonio really looked at the patients in this ASCENT trial and looked at the amount of trope 2 that was expressed on the tumor and looked to see, well, did those people who had a lot of expression of that receptor do better compared to those tumors that had a little bit of expression? And it turned out that all patients benefited uh, in the trial from sasituzumab compared to standard chemo, regardless of the amount of trope 2 expression. And so I think this taught us that when choosing to give sasituzumab to patients with metastatic triple negative disease, at this point in time, we do not need to test their tumors to know how high the trope 2 expression is 
because patients are benefiting regardless of the level of trope to expression. So I think that was a, a very helpful uh, analysis um, to see. And I, as you can see, I think there's a little bit of a theme here because the first presentation was sort of showing that immunotherapy seemed to work in tumors that were pdl one positive, and we've now learned we should test the tumor for pdl one This one is actually telling us we don't need to test the tumor for trope 2 uh, to help pick sasituzumab, um, so I think a, a good learning lesson for us now. There was another study that was presented that, that was a little disappointing um, to us, which was um, a trial called the Ipatunity 130 trial, and it was looking at a, a target in a drug that I was very excited about called Ipatisertib. It's a drug that targets a pathway called the AKT pathway, which turns out there are lots of different ways that pathway can get activated in triple negative breast cancer cells. And some other data had suggested that when you add this drug to chemotherapy, it was really doing very well and keeping cancer controlled longer than just standard chemo. And so this trial was trying to validate those previous findings in, in a larger study and see if that was really true. And so it randomized patients whose tumors had some type of alteration in this pathway, this pathway that leads to AKT activation. And that could be either having a, what we call a PS3 kinase mutation, having an alteration in P10, or having an AKT mutation. And they randomized patients who had these alterations in their tumors to either get chemo with, with in this case, paclitaxel, or to get that paclitaxel with this drug, this ipatisertib drug, which is AKT inhibitor. And much to my surprise, there was not benefit from adding the ipatisertib to the paclitaxel. In fact, the outcomes were about the same um, in both arms. Uh, and so this was very different than what we had previously seen from an earlier study. Um, which was a smaller trial, and I think did teach us, you know, the fact that we sometimes do really need these larger studies to validate data and to be certain of our findings. Um, and so, unfortunately, we're not seeing benefit with ipatisertib added to, to taxane from this trial. Um, and then, you know, I really just wanted to touch upon two other studies. One um, was, I think, a really interesting trial called the Contessa trial. We're now shifting into the hormone receptor positive um, HER2 negative space. This study was looking at a really interesting new drug called tesataxel. So, you know, I think many people may be familiar with the fact that we standardly give uh, IV taxane therapy to our patients, and sometimes that's IV paclitaxel, sometimes that's IV nab paclitaxel. And, you know, we've obviously always wanted to have an oral version of this, but it was a little tricky to develop an oral version because standard Taxol, if you put it into a pill, it would get excreted by this pump in your stomach uh, and it wouldn't get retained very well to get good drug levels up. So this really cool new drug um, wasn't dependent on that pump in the stomach and it allowed you to absorb the drug. Um, and it turns out the drug also is, has a really long half-life. So you could just take pills once every three weeks, um, which is pretty nice, um, and have the drug levels maintained over that time period. And so what they decided to do, though, was they decided to take another chemo drug called capecitabine, also many people may know it as Zolota, and add tesataxel to it and compare it to the capecitabine alone and to see was the two, were these two drugs better than one drug. Um, they did use a lower dose of the 
capecitabine when they added it to the oral taxane drug. And they did find that the two drugs did perform significantly better than the one drug. And what I thought was important was there were some side effects that I think we find challenging with IV Taxol that were much better with the oral formulation here. Um, typically, most patients will lose their hair with IV Taxol therapy. Um, in this trial, uh, under 10% of patients had hair loss, and so much different than we would see with IV Taxol, so that was great. Um, and we also saw lower rates of neuropathy. Um, which is very important, I think, particularly when patients can be on these drugs for long periods of time, and, and that does become sometimes a rate-limiting side effect. Um, is the drug still does have other side effects. It does lower blood count quite a bit, um, just like you know an IV um, chemo would. It, it also is lowering uh, white blood cell counts. But I think it's really nice to, to think about the fact that we could have a new oral version of Taxol um, you know, they are doing other studies with this drug just by itself, which would be great to have a drug that is only given as pills once every three weeks that doesn't have much hair loss and has lower rates of neuropathy. And um, so I think we're going to see more to come from this drug. But there's also another drug company that has a different oral taxane called Araxel, given with a, 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 another pill. Um, and there's some data from that uh, oral taxane that are also very exciting. Um, and so, again, very nice to see development of oral formulations of our standard um, IV-type treatments. And then finally, I thought I'd conclude with um, just touching upon at least one study in the HER2-positive space, just to, to have covered all three subtypes. Um, I think we all were very excited last year when we saw data from a drug called trastuzumab deruxtecan. Some people also call it TDXD or DS8201. It has lots of names. Uh, this is an antibody drug conjugate. So again, like we were talking about before when we talked about uh, the sasituzumab drug, this drug is an antibody that's targeting HER2, and it's linked to a very potent uh, chemo drug. And we had seen very high response rates with this drug previously, and it led to its FDA approval. And at San Antonio this year, we saw updated data following these patients for longer, suggesting that disease now is controlled for almost 20 months um, in this particular trial, so even longer than we previously thought. Um, and so, again, I think these data just really supported how unprecedented um, the efficacy is with this particular agent in patients who have metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer. So I think it was very exciting uh, to see the longer follow-up from this trial. So I think you can see across uh, the three different subsets of breast cancer, we continue to see um, nice new um, data emerge um, for, for metastatic breast cancer, which is really nice. And finally, I think I'd just like to, to touch quickly upon um, how um, we may think about telehealth in this new era. Um, you know, I think as a physician, I will say it's really nice to have the opportunity to be able to do telehealth visits. But I think I've definitely learned some lessons uh, over the last several months um, that can make, uh, I think, telehealth visits smoother, you know, as we all have been learning how, how to do this. You know, I think one thing, um, you know, as a patient is, you know, sometimes it's tricky because telehealth visits can use a platform that maybe, you know, you're not used to using or don't have even downloaded. Um, and so it can take time to get that set up. And so to make sure that you have it all downloaded and ready to go uh, prior to the visit 
um, you know, just to make sure that things uh, can run smoothly. So doing a test run after you've downloaded it always is a, a good idea. Make sure you have a good uh, internet connection if you're doing um, a visit over something like Zoom. Um, and to write down a list of questions that you might have, as well as writing down any symptoms that you're having prior to the visit. You know, sometimes um, when you get into to the visit, sometimes you forget about some of the questions that you may have had or, or wanted to make sure you highlighted some of the symptoms that may be ongoing. And so I think having a list of this in front of you is always really nice just to make sure before the visit ends that you've really covered uh, all the things that were important to, to discuss, making sure if you need, for example, refills of medications or things like that, that you've made a note to, to make sure you've asked your physician for that. And I think finding a, a place that's quiet where you can really focus um, and not get distracted by many things that go on, for example, at home, uh, is always important um, just to make sure that you can make the, the most of, the of your time. Um, but I, again, I, I think it's been a great opportunity for us to be able to connect, um, you know, particularly during COVID where it can be challenging to get in and out and travel to, to places. Um, you know, again, I think it's been uh, really beneficial. So thank you very much for, for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Tulane. That was really excellent, and you really covered a lot of um, a lot of areas in, in a brief amount of time. So thank you so much for that. I know there'll be questions for you also during the Q and A. And our next speaker is uh, Ms. Lauren Chatelian, and Ms. Chatelian is women is the Women and Children's Program Manager at Cancer Care. And she'll be discussing Cancer Care's free programs and services and um, a bit about our Hope Line and website. So I'm, my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, um, uh, Ms. Chatelian. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. And hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. As Dr. Mesner mentioned, I will be speaking about Cancer Care's programs and services. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include case management, counseling and support groups, educational workshops, publications, and possible limited financial assistance. In my role at Cancer Care, I provide supportive services to individuals and families impacted by a cancer diagnosis. I maintain a clinical concentration in breast cancers and keep current of changing trends and new knowledge that affects our programs and delivery of clinical interventions. There are many aspects of a breast cancer diagnosis that may be addressed throughout psychosocial supportive services making informed treatment decisions, quality of life concerns, clinical trials, fertility options, and communication with one's medical team are important top topics that can be discussed with an oncology social worker. A cancer diagnosis can be very overwhelming. Additional support and guidance, as well as establishing a supportive network, may help to relieve feelings of anxiety related to one's diagnosis. It can be beneficial to determine ways to approach these challenges that may surface. Working one-on-one -on -one with an oncology social worker through individual counseling can offer a space to express one's feelings, emotions, and concerns. By calling Cancer Care's Hopeline, one of our social workers can help navigate ways to seek support services. Individuals diagnosed with breast cancer may also choose to supplement existing social networks by joining a support group. 
joining a support group can be a way of connecting with others going through a similar experience who may understand what you could encounter throughout diagnosis and treatment. Being a member in a support group can offer the opportunity to communicate with others, gather and provide support, as well as obtain information. Cancer Care offers national breast cancer support groups online for those in active treatment as well as post-treatment. Our online support groups take place using a password-protected message board format and are led by professional oncology social workers. Groups are held for 15 weeks at a time, and you can register at cancercare.org. On Cancer Care's website, there is also a wide array of reading material and information related to breast cancer. This includes recorded Connect Education workshops like this one today, Cancer Care Out Loud, the Cancer Care podcast, publications about speaking to your medical team and coping with one's breast cancer diagnosis, as well as stories of help and hope in breast cancer resources. There's also a listing of upcoming virtual community programs as well. People diagnosed with breast cancer may experience practical and financial concerns throughout one's treatment. Unfortunately, financial concerns may be a source of continuing stress. Please know that if you are encountering financial hardships, there are organizations that may be able to help you. Cancer Care's case management services are offered nationally to patients, post-treatment survivors, and caregivers affected by cancer. We offer a short-term strength-based approach to case management where the social worker will work with the client and connecting them to resources, referrals, and financial assistance. If you are interested in learning more and connecting to Cancer Care Services, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hope Line at 1-800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. At Cancer Care, our oncology social workers are trained in how a breast cancer diagnosis impacts an individual, as well as their loved ones. We are here to offer you support throughout this experience and look forward to hearing from you. It has been such a pleasure to be a part of this very informative program today. Thank you so much for your attention and the opportunity to speak. And I will now turn our program back to Dr. Mesner. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, um, Nisha Tillian. That was really excellent. And um, actually, before we move on to the q and I'm going to ask you just a few uh, questions. Um, so just going to, they're going to be yes-no questions as before. And... Um, uh, so I'm just going to um, start with our uh, our first question. And our first question is, as a result of this workshop, I better understand the treatment updates for early-stage ERPR and HER2-positive breast cancer in the context of COVID-19 presented at SABCS, yes or no? And the next question is, as a result of this workshop, I am more confident about talking with my healthcare team about the treatment updates for younger people with ERPR and HER2-positive breast cancer presented at SABCS, yes or no? The next question is, as a result of this workshop, I have more knowledge and insight about the treatment updates for metastatic breast cancer for people with ERPR and HER2-positive breast cancer presented at SABCS, yes or no?
And uh, the uh, next question is, as a result of this workshop, I feel more confident talking with my healthcare team about the updates for older people with ERP on HER2-positive breast cancer in the context of COVID-19, yes or no? And the next question is, as a result of this workshop, I am better equipped with tips to manage treatment side effects from my healthcare team. Yes or no? And the last question will be, as a result of this workshop, I am more confident using telehealth, telemedicine appointments equipped with the guidelines to prepare for these appointments. Yes or no? Okay, and I want to thank you all for your addressing these uh, questions. It helps us to know what you knew coming into the program and now what you know coming out of the program. And now we're going to have a Q&A, so I'm going to ask Norma to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, uh, there are quite a few questions, so we're going to do the very best we can with your questions. Um, so I'm going to begin with... Um, Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star and one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the cube, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Okay, excellent. Thank you, Norma. And we'll um, some online questions. So we'll start with one for Dr. Grana. In addition to nutrition and one's diet, do you find local hospitals and more and more offering exercise classes through their hospitals for improving bones for both osteoporosis and those on AIs? I find that increasing numbers of institutions uh, have bone programs, bone health programs. Some of them are run through PM&R, or physical medicine and rehabilitation. Some are run through orthopedics. Uh, there is a, a bone program that's run nationally. Uh, and these are all very, very helpful. What I find sometimes lacking is the understanding that women on aromatase inhibitors have other things uh, in addition to just osteoporosis and osteopenia that need to be addressed because some of the bone-strengthening drugs also lower risk of recurrence of breast cancer, and so there's another rationale for using those drugs. But I am happy to see that there's a focus. Our program, for example, focuses on nutrition. It focuses on exercise uh, in addition to educating women about osteoporosis and osteopenia and the role of these drugs. Excellent. And um, another question um, from one of our participants. This is for Dr. Grelo. Um, um, it's a question about denosinab's longevity of using for those on AIs as well as use as an adjunctive protective treatment for breast cancer postmenopausal women. Um, and also, mm -hmm. are there any recent trials findings on the use of Prolia for more than 10 years? Um, if you could comment on this. General, in a general way of this question. Right. So in early stage breast cancer, um, 
the only proven uh, role for denosumab would actually have nothing to do with the breast cancer. It would uh, be related to managing the bone loss and the osteoporosis that might go along with a breast cancer diagnosis. There's no defined period of use. It would all be based on bone density. It has no proven benefit in trials for reducing risk of breast cancer. So it would be totally an osteoporosis question. Um, in the osteoporosis setting, um, you know, the, the duration of how long you use it um, can be based on what's going on with the bones. But we do have concerns about long-term use of these drugs. Uh, from from a bone, um, you know, uh, osteoporosis standpoint, because they can lead to complications. So, in the metastatic setting, which is not what the question was, uh, denosumab has a proven role, um, along with another bone modifying agent, uh, Zometa, in um, reducing complications from bone metastases that we can see and that already exist. But that's a different question. Thank you, thank you. Um, and uh, this question um, for um, for Dr. Talani: Does the protein? What does the protein human epidermal growth factor HER2 do? So HER2 is a protein that's found on about 15 to 20 percent of breast cancer at a high level, uh, meaning where it's what we call overexpressed. We know that HER2 is a very important growth factor signal um, that really is driving cancer growth, so stimulating downstream um, you know, pathways in the cancer cell that really drive uh, the, the cancer cell to grow. And so you know, prior to having drugs that turn off HER2, having a HER2-positive cancer was associated with a cancer that was more aggressive than other subtypes of disease because it had this very strong growth factor signal. But now that we have drugs that very potently turn off HER2, it's really led to HER2-positive cancers having very similar outcomes to HER2-negative breast cancers. Um, and so really it's been a game changer to be able to turn off this growth factor um, that, that's driving uh, the cancer cell to grow. Excellent. And um, as we're about to conclude, I wanted to ask each of, um, oh, I see, we do have a question, uh, a telephone question. So we'll take that question, um, and Norma. Thank you. Lynn F., your line is open. Thank you. Uh, great program. Dr. Grana, regarding the breast cancer index, I wanted to verify if it's equally effective for ductal as well as invasive lobular. And I was a little confused. I wanted to verify if its data is coming from use for tamoxifen as well as aromatase inhibitors. Thank uh, good you. questions. Uh, good questions. So the data that I presented from the trans-atom study that was just uh, presented at San Antonio was with uh, five years of tamoxifen. That study looked at women who got five versus 10 years of tamoxifen, and the data uh, showed that the breast cancer index was useful in predicting benefit. Now, uh, having said that, there is data from aromatase inhibitor use also showing that it can be uh, useful in predicting who should be con who continues to be at increased risk and who continues to benefit. Um, the the test gives you 
two pieces of information. It gives you a sense of risk uh, over the five to 10 year period of time. The first five years have passed. What's your residual risk? And the second piece of information that it gives you is a ratio that tells you whether someone is likely to benefit from continued endocrine therapy versus not. So sometimes you get information that you don't really want. But uh, the question is to lobular and ductal. There is no suggestion that there's a difference between lobular and ductal. Excellent. Um, Excellent. Thank you. Um, That's a great question. Great answer. Um, And now um, um, I'm going to ask each speaker if you would just – Give us a takeaway summary for um, from the workshop that each of you would like to give to our participants, starting with Dr. Graylow. I guess my takeaway is, um, with looking at all of the data that was presented, that when we try to come up with the best treatment plan um, for a given patient, we have to take into account features um, of the tumor. So we talked about the genomics, the estrogen receptor, the HER2, et cetera, um, but also features of the patient. I talked about a trial that showed a very different outcome for pre- versus postmenopausal women and there are lots of other um, features of the patient that might come into play. So we need to take into account the patient as well as the tumor, and everything needs to be individualized in this day and age. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Grana? I guess my takeaway was I I love the science, the data from Responder and, and the clinical trials. I also really like the emphasis on quality of life and the fact that women can do a lot to help themselves as they're going through this breast cancer journey, whether that's a proactive approach to nutrition and exercise, both to decrease risk of recurrence and to maintain bone health, or whether it's attention to uh, depression, anxiety, and vasomotor symptoms such as hot flashes and night sweats. There are things that can be done to make the cancer journey easier and more successful. Excellent. And uh, and Dr. Chalani? Yeah, no, I I mean, I think um, the way one of the messages that I see is that, you know, we've come a long way in breast cancer from thinking of breast cancer as one disease to then being able to see breast cancer as sort of one of three subtypes, either positive or two positive or triple negative, But now we've taken it a step further where we're really trying to personalize therapy, um, you know, based on the individual tumor where, you know, we're now learning that we do have to test tumors for various things to understand which patients are going to benefit from certain therapies such as, you know, PD-L1 to know if uh, checkpoint inhibitors uh, may work or knowing if a tumor has a pediatric kinase mutation. Um, And so we're learning more and more um, about how to individualize treatment to an individual patient to really increase the chances that a therapy is going to help um, and spare patients for whom it's not going to help, you know, unneeded side effects. So it's really nice to see um, this continue to improve. Excellent. And Ms. Italian? Um. Sure. Yeah, of course. Um, I would just like to, you know, highlight that, um, you know, please know that there is support available. This is a very challenging time. Um, see what works for you, if that may be individual counseling or connecting with others through support groups, just knowing that there is support there. Excellent. 
Well, I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been phenomenal. This has been an amazing program. I know we have many more questions in queue, but I do want to thank all of the participants who have asked questions or either on the telephone or online. That really um, at least begins to address some of your questions. And um, so in, in kind of wrapping everything up, I would just like to say that uh, um, for those of you who were able to ask a question, please take that the question, the answer you got, and also the, all the, and this applies to everybody, that all the information you received on the program today, please take that back to your treating healthcare team. Um, we're hoping that you have, have more information and that you also will have a sense of confidence in asking your healthcare team your questions. And perhaps there were some things you learned today that you could think about how you might apply them to yourself. Um, so that's really important as well. Um, and um, and for those of you who didn't get to ask a question, please take your question and bring it back to your healthcare team. They know the most about you. And that's actually true for people who even asked the question as well. Um, your healthcare team really knows you very very well, and uh, it's a it's a good chance to to uh, bring up your question either in a visit or telemedicine visit, telehealth visit, um, to to really um, schedule time to have your questions answered. That's really important. Um, also. Um, we recognize this is a time of great need for people throughout the um, world, actually. Um, and so um, we do want you to know that there are many um, support organizations out there to help you, Cancer Care being one of them. Um, you will be getting, at the end of the program, um, uh, through SurveyMonkey, a, uh, an evaluation of the program, and that evaluation will also include links to any resources that speakers mentioned during the program today, as well as other links that we think would be helpful to you, as well as information about organizations that could perhaps help you with any of the issues or questions that you might have in terms of wanting to get information um, from a really medical information, credible resources. We want you to get, go to credible resources for information and also to get the support you might need, either be practical, financial, um, copay assistance, um, assistance with um, just coping um, with uh, lifestyle adaptations, the changes you might make, want to make, and also concerns you may have about uh, COVID and concerns like that that you also may want to bring up with your healthcare team. Remember, your healthcare team consists of all the different disciplines that were represented today. So recognize that there are many people on that team that could be helpful to you. So as we conclude today, I would not want anyone to feel that you're alone. I mean, truly alone with nobody to contact. We, everyone at this time, because of social isolation, isolating because of COVID, people feel a little bit more alone than they did usually. Because you can't get together with friends face to face. You can talk to them on the phone. You can use social media, but nevertheless, it's not quite the same. And uh, so, I think um, we do want you to know that although it's normal to feel alone, we want you to also know that there are resources to help you when you're feeling really alone. And um, there are resources that are available 24 hours a day. There are resources that are available during business hours. And we want you to know about all those resources so you can access them and get the most help possible. And also from your healthcare team, please ask them when they're available because I know issues often come up um, in the evenings and weekends and holidays and special times. So be sure you have access of how you can contact your healthcare team um, when you have a, a, a kind of burning question that you need to get answered. Um, and uh, or if you need to go to the emergency room when you make those decisions as well. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. 
You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.